All right, so last week I talked about doctrinal taxonomies, uh, these ways of trying to figure out what should divide us and what shouldn't divide us. Building off the example of, or building on the example of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.3, when he talked about matters of first importance. So if you remember in that letter, he says, I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you. Um, You know, you guys need to stop disagreeing about whether Apollos is right or I'm right or you hyper, you know, annoying people who are saying that you're followers of Christ himself instead of one of the apostles. Uh, You you need to distinguish between what's of most importance and these other matters and come together in the hope of the resurrection that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, I, I just want to note that it's when you're reading Paul, in almost every letter he talks about matters of division and unity, and he almost never recommends that Christians divide or separate from one another when they disagree about doctrine. He only recommends that when there are heretics in the church who disagree about doctrine or individuals who are continuing in unrepentant sin. So if a guy's sleeping with his mother-in-law, kick him out of the church. Um, If someone is teaching false doctrine, they're rejecting Christ, they're teaching heresy, kick them out of the church. I, I think that's probably good for us to realize. Paul had probably a lot broader of a category for unity with diversity of belief than we would allow for. So we should keep that in mind as we talk about doctrinal division. So Christians built on this, developing a two-tier taxonomy for Christian doctrine with the essentials in one category and the non-essentials in another. If people agreed on the essentials, we say they're Christians, and especially in the time of Christendom, don't execute those guys. But they might execute the people over non-essential or over essential disagreements. Okay, I don't think that's good. I think this is one of the best things about Baptists and free churches is you don't execute people who disagree with the essentials. Instead, you try to win them to Christ through the power of the gospel. Okay, so these things are really important there. And for some periods of church history, you could live or die over the way that people structured this taxonomy. Uh, We need to, of course, move beyond that. Hopefully we all have. Um, And I, I think this is another principle that I'd want you to have in mind, is when we talk about doctrinal disagreements, you should look at church history and the way Christians have dealt with a different doctrine over time and find that pattern, that movement from we execute people over this to we excommunicate them from our church because they don't agree with us on this particular doctrine, to we say, yeah, you're a good Christian brother, but maybe we won't be part of the same denomination or local church. And then eventually, on some matters, we say, yeah, there won't be resolution, so we can at least be part of the same denomination, if not part of the same local church. Um, So we'll talk about some of these issues as we go. Well, Moeller builds, Al Moeller builds on this two-tier taxonomy with a three-tier taxonomy using the metaphor of medical triage. He comes up with these three levels. First level is pretty much all the essentials in the two-tier taxonomy. But then he has a second and a third level. In the second level, there are issues that might create boundaries between Christians so that they're part of different churches or even different denominations. But we still say these people are faithful Christians, 
we just might not be like-minded enough on something to be part of the same church. And then there are third-level disagreements. In the, for these disagreements, we can say we, these disagreements should not affect whether or not we can be happy members of the same local church. So do you see the, the way that works? Now, he, he has some weaknesses to this taxonomy. Uh, there, this is probably true of all taxonomies, not just his. But the first one is that he doesn't really clarify that a whole doctrine can't fit into one level. So you can't say something like, the doctrine of the end times, eschatology, is purely a third-level doctrine. Because there are aspects of that doctrine that should be in the first level, or maybe even in some in the second level. It's not all third level. Well, the timing of the Lord's return, or like the ordering of the events at the end, you know, if you're pre-mill or post-mill or a-mill, those are third level things, mostly. Post-mill people, they have to put this in the secondary category because it affects the way they go about being a Christian and being a church. Um, but whether or not Christ returns, that's first level, because often that's connected to a denial of the literal physical resurrection of Christ. So they'll say Christ is spiritually returned or something like that, and we'd say that's a first level issue. So a whole category of doctrine of systematic theology can't fit neatly into one category. Second, this concept of theological triage requires people to rank doctrines, but he doesn't, doesn't give any guidance for how to rank the doctrines. It's really just a matter of intuition. So I feel like um, the end times isn't that big of a deal, so I'm putting it in third category. Or I feel like if you deny a pre-tribulational rapture, you're not a Christian, I'm putting that in first category. You see how different people are going to intuitively place categories in different places. That, that's a weakness of the taxonomies. Third, he doesn't provide distinct criteria for what counts as essential to the Christian faith. Uh, so one person, again, we'll, I'll keep using end times examples because this one, a lot of reasonable people are saying this shouldn't divide. divide. Some, some people that I know um, put the end times, a uh, literal 1,000-year reign of Christ, pre-tribulational rapture, seven-year tribulation, they put that as a first-level gospel issue. So um, one of my youth pastors uh, back in the day, got fired from our church because when the deacons who were in charge of the church were grilling him about what was central to the Christian faith, he said the gospel, and they wanted uh, the end times to be central. And that was a big debate, was what's central here? And he lost his job over it. So uh, there are people, this isn't like non-existent, this is a real thing, but we can tend to pack anything we want into that first-level gospel issue, and we need to be aware of that. Uh, we can't smuggle our favorite beliefs into our conception of the gospel. I'd say particularly in the conservative evangelical scene, we have to be aware of this in terms of like Calvinistic and Arminianistic beliefs about how the doctrines of grace work. Um, there, I think as any cage stage Calvinist was at one point in my life, I think I was like, you can't be, a, I cannot be a church member with someone who's an Arminian. Well, I don't know that that's quite the right approach. That's, that's packing something into the first level that maybe shouldn't be there. Fourth, he doesn't provide latitude for the complexity of doctrinal articulation. By that I mean sometimes people believe the same things, but they're using different terminology. 
Yeah, thanks, Ben. It is freezing in here. Um, he doesn't allow for the dynamic nature of doctrine. What that I, by that I mean the church has come to greater clarity on some issues over time, or they've come to realize that some issues aren't as clear as once thought. So the, you know, the doctrine of purgatory for a long time, all Christians sort of accepted, but we became clear, or became clear to Christians generally, ah, that doctrine isn't actually clear. So there's a dynamic nature of the way we articulate doctrine, and when we find greater clarity, then maybe there's more need for division. And then on other issues, when we arrive at the conclusion that there's not as much clarity as we thought, the exact arrangement of the sequence of the end of the world, or the beginning of the world, however you want to talk about that, um, we say, oh, that's fuzzier than we were saying it was. So doctrinal articulation is dynamic, and we need to recognize that. So we can't keep fighting battles from a thousand years ago, and sometimes things that were overlooked a thousand years ago, we need to make a big deal of. Uh, So it's a dynamic situation. And then finally, there's the contextualized outworking of doctrine in a church's life. Uh, When we came to Crystal Lake Road Baptist Church, there were some things that were of greater importance to fix in that church environment than in a different church environment. So when we're doing theological triage, it's not just about how significant that doctrine is. It's also about what impact is that doctrine having in the life of the church now. So I'd say church polity, the way you structure a church, is like a second to third tier issue, but there are worse forms of church polity. And there are some forms that are so bad that you have to prioritize that, maybe over against working on clarity about what the Lord's Supper means, even though on the doctrinal scale, the Lord's Supper is of greater importance than church polity. You see, you see what I mean? In this ch- particular church's situation, some things are more important than others. I want to illustrate this with an excursus that I put in a neat little box for you, okay? I'm working on the style of my notes as I progress and evolve every week here. Um, Okay, so as I'm going to give these examples, I will ask for you to listen carefully to what I'm saying so that you don't hear what I'm not saying along the way. We're dealing with complicated issues, so the uh, possibility of confusion is high here or, or miscommunication on my part. All right. Um, the outworking of doctrinal convictions always takes place in the messiness of a broken world in an imperfect church. That's reality. Um, In our minds, when we talk about doctrinal triage, we might have the idealized situation in mind. Well, that's never the case in this world. The more missional the church, the messier the situation. So the more evangelistic the church, the messier it's going to be. So why were the churches Paul is dealing with so messed up? Why do they have so many areas of disagreement? Because it's a very missional setting. Um, I've been talking with Mel a lot about the island of Guam, and there, there is not a solid, um, developing, rich theology in most churches on Guam. So when we send Mel back, Lord willing, he's going to have to deal with way more doctrinal messiness than in some other places. Well, Mel is going to have to be able to deal with the dynamic nature of doctrine in a messy situation in a nimble and thoughtful and wise way. I'd suggest that we need to do that as well here in the Twin Cities. Um, In the Twin Cities, there are thousands of faithful churches. So people leave churches all the time, and sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for not good. We'll talk about that. But the more missional churches, even in a rich place like this, 
the, and the more fruitful your evangelism is, the more issues you're going to have to deal with and the more flexible you've got to be. Let me, let me give some examples. Number one, the example of female pastors. Um, Moeller categorized the identification of women as pastors or the permission of women as pastors as a second-tier issue, meaning uh, you should divide or separate from them, but we shouldn't call them non-Christians over this issue. But there might be occasions when women, female pastors, needs to be upgraded to a first-tier issue, and there are some situations where female pastor issue needs to be downgraded to a third-tier issue. Okay, so sometimes what's placed in a second tier issue needs to move in either direction. So let me give an example of where it should be downgraded. In some congregations, there may be no godly men who can take on the pastoral functions. So imagine a scenario where a missionary goes to China to start a church, and they find an existing congregation that they want to work with and realize it would be better for me to help this church than to start my own, you know, better for me as a Caucasian pastor to join up with a pre-existing church. But they find that 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 church has female pastors because all of the godly men are imprisoned. Well, this missionary shouldn't declare this church unfaithful or refuse to cooperate with them or encourage them to appoint an ungodly male to carry out the pastoral functions. It's dealing with a a messy, broken situation. And in that case, I think they need to downgrade that to a third-tier issue. That shouldn't be the first thing that they're trying to solve. There are a lot of other issues to solve, a lot of other things to do, like maybe evangelize and disciple men who could even be raised up as elders. So do you see what I mean there? Um, Now, there are situations where maybe this issue should be upgraded to a first-tier issue. You might come across a church that says, it's clear to us in the Bible that God does not approve of female pastors. Maybe someone would say that. And they'd follow it up by saying, and we don't care. We're just going to do what we want. Well, that issue then isn't just about female pastors. It's about biblical authority and divine authority. And then we should upgrade that to first-tier issue. Does that make sense? Now, there are many situations. There are many godly, faithful Christians who make good, careful arguments from Scripture about why they permit female pastors. That's where we say this is a second-tier issue because churches eventually have to decide, are we going to have a female pastor or not? There's no dual practice on this. And in our church, I'm not convinced that the Bible permits female pastors. And I think there are exegetical arguments to say that we should have only male pastors. So that's, that's what we do. And um, we leave it in that issue. Now, I don't think we need to accuse every church that has a female pastor of being unfaithful. We need to investigate it because there are more or less faithful ways of arriving at that position. Does this make sense? Like, doctrinal triage needs to, it's not black and white. Um, Let me give one more example here. I put it in the footnotes, but it might be instructive. There are some churches that don't say that pastors equal elders equal overseers. They say elders and overseers are the authority over the church. Pastors are just a gift to the church. So they'll appeal to Ephesians 4, where Christ gives gifts to the church— some apostles, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers, and they say this is not an authoritative office. So women can operate in any of those roles, and they treat it like a minister of the church, what, you know, like a, a ministry director or something. So there are some churches, Kristen oversees our women's ministry. There are some churches that would give her the title of pastor of women's ministry. Um, whoever 
you know, um, Marilyn oversees a lot of our children's ministry. Some churches would give her the title of pastor of children's ministry. And what they mean by that is what we say when we say director of children's ministry or director of women's ministry. So even when you hear the term pastor, you have to try to, before denouncing it, understand what they mean by it. Now, I think it's confusing when people do that. Um, But we have to be careful that we don't have the impulse to say, you're being unfaithful to God. We want to recognize what people actually mean. Any questions on that? I hope you don't hear me saying we're about to raise up female pastors because I've made arguments time and again on why we wouldn't do that. And um, yeah, I think that stands. But I, I want us to have a right disposition towards churches that do have female pastors and understand that it's not a monolithic issue. There are, there are different you know, forces at play there. Second, I want to give the example of millennial views about the dynamic nature of doctrinal triage. Um, Some doctrines are more urgent at a particular moment simply because the church at large is trying to clarify what the Bible actually teaches about that issue. So there are certain spark points throughout the history of the church where we've tried to clarify an issue and there's been more division and disagreement because we're trying to clarify whether or not the Bible speaks to that issue directly and clearly. When the church has wrestled with an issue for decades or centuries, it's then usually downgraded when there's widespread agreement that continued division in debate won't bring resolution. So when we realize, hey, we could keep fighting over this and hating each other, but no new arguments are being offered, the Bible isn't as clear as we thought it might be on this, so we need to put this in a, on a third-level issue. Well, the issue of millennialism, pre or post or trib, or even of dispensationalism and progressive covenantalism and covenantalism, these issues that one time in church history were like first or second tier issues for some, well, now we can safely downgrade them to third tier issues. No one is making new arguments about the end times. We're all saying, here are, here are the, the watershed issues that will put you in one camp or the other, and it's really tough to know. So one of my favorite YouTube videos is uh, Tom Schreiner talking about premillennialism versus amillennialism. And he says, I have changed my mind like a dozen times on this issue. And it's really, really hard to say. And at the time of the video, I think he was saying, I am barely an amillennialist instead of a premillennialist. Well, when it's that difficult, and one of the most faithful Bible scholars of our generation is saying that, I think we all should rightly, humbly say, yeah, my opinion on this, if this is my pet doctrine, I need to put it in the third tier issue uh, category. Does that make sense how these issues get downgraded? Um, another example here is credo-baptism and pedo-baptism. Um, there was a time where people excommunicated and executed each other over this issue, partly because baptism was connected to your citizenship in a town. So in Geneva, Switzerland, Calvin, you know, affirmed the execution of a credo Baptist because it wasn't just about baptism. It was also about your citizenship in that, in that town or country. Um, we, I think Baptists are, and free churches are right on this issue too. We should separate church and state so you're not combining your church membership with, Christ, uh, with your local citizenship or something like that. Um, over time... Uh, we've at large realized um, if someone 
disagrees with me about baptism, that doesn't mean they're not a faithful Christian. Now, in a lot of places, they're saying, well, um, we can even disagree about baptism and be part of the same denomination. So the Evangelical Free Church of America, we have some representatives of that church in our church, they permit both credo-baptism and pedo-baptism, and I footnoted their long statement on this, but they say we're not trying to say that both are equally right, but just that no more arguments are being offered, and uh, we're not going to come to resolution on this, and it doesn't necessarily need to conflict with our cooperation on mission for the Lord. Um, So there's been a movement on the baptism issue along that triage spectrum. Now, most recently, I footnoted a couple articles, one by Joe Rigney, arguing that Baptist churches should permit open membership, saying paedo-baptists should be able to join their church, as well as credo-baptists. Gavin Ortland made a YouTube video that I think he made better arguments than Joe Rigney for this position in that video. I've put that in there. Um, A guy from a seminary that I used to go to, Jeff Straub, wrote a blog post against that view. And then I wrote a post for our church blog that I included as an appendix in your notes today saying, I really love their impulse, but I think it creates more problems than it does solve the problem. I think there might be, I, I agree with some of what they're arguing for, but I think fundamentally it's not pastoral because they're going to end up, they're saying, we'll accept you into membership, but when you want to baptize your kids, we're going to send you to different, you know, go, go to any Pado baptist church and get that baptism done, and then come back to us for all your regular ministry needs. Well, I just think that's not pastoral. I don't think it's a great solution. Um, I think if you're going to walk down that road, you need to say, well, we'll become a dual practice church because we want to be pastoral all the way through. So, you know, it's a complicated issue. The reason I put my, like, thoughts on it is in the appendix here is because I hope it will help give an example maybe of how to disagree with people, how to try to clarify issues. So I have a section in there trying to clarify what Rigney and Ortland are not saying, what they are saying, what we can appreciate about their argument, and what we might disagree with. Well, I think that's a right way of navigating disagreements with people, not just saying, uh, you're unfaithful, or you're on the slippery slope to liberalism, or you're dumb. Like, that, that's not right. Um, and some of the responses I've seen to Rigney and Ortland pretty much say that. Um, so we need to go through these doc, doc, uh, doctrinal taxonomies, recognizing that things are fluid. They're not black and white categories, and we need to be willing to revisit our categorization and adapt given the situation of the trajectory of church history and so on. All right, any, any comments or questions on those? This is the most debatable thing I'll talk about all morning. It's a tough one. And I, you know, I want to say, when you're thinking about views you disagree with, try to put people in situations, like embody that thing. So when we're talking about should we allow paedo-baptists to join our church, there's a situation that I think is unhelpful or unpastoral where a young family who are convictional paedo-baptists want to come, and then we're not going to be able to baptize their children. But there's also a situation where, like, a 60-year-old woman, widow, comes to our church who was baptized as a Presbyterian infant, and she's changed her mind about baptism, but still thinks her baptism was valid and really values it. Well, I think that's a different scenario. You know, we don't run into any issues. She's saying, yeah, I think it was irregular, probably should be done differently, 
but I also really think it was valid. And I can't have, I'm never going to have a kid who I want to baptize. You know, so I think that even as you look at particular situations, you can understand why some allowances might be made. Almost every Baptist church that I've been connected to does this with the mode of baptism. So if someone was baptized by pouring or something as a Christian, generally we say, yeah, the mo- it's irregular but valid. That's Dever's big argument. So let them into your membership. So we have these categories already. We just have to figure it out as an individual church. Does that make sense? Okay. Tim. Yeah. Yeah, to save time, I just point you to my recent Christmas sermon on Jesus's baptism, where I talk about that a little bit. So um, if you're interested in what I think, but I have to save time here. So um, all right. Uh, And then a final side note. In our Constitution, we say you have to be baptized following your conversion to join our church. So even though, you know, I've, I've think there might be good arguments for receiving someone who is baptized as an infant. Our church constitution doesn't permit that, so just so you're aware. Uh, Developing a more nuanced taxonomy here. Gavin Ortland, author of this book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, I think this is a helpful book. I know several ladies read it in our church. I'd recommend this as a a starting point if you want to think more about these things. Uh, But he he builds on Moeller's three-tier taxonomy with a four-tier taxonomy, and he, he just shifts some things around. I don't think the best thing about what he does is adding a fourth category. Um, the, he, he'll help us in a different way. But he gives us a fourth category that talks about relevant and stimulating but not theologically important areas of disagreement. So musical instrumentation and worship or this style of music, this is largely non-doctrinal and non-theological. It's primarily preferential. And we'll talk about this more when we get into matters of conscience. Uh, There are some biblical principles, like we want the congregation to be heard. So there's a reason we don't do fog and lights and like everyone coming in with earplugs in so they don't blow out their eardrums. Well, that might get into doctrinal peace, but on the whole, um, whether we sing songs only from 1800s or only from the 2020s, that's probably wisdom and preference combined. Um, other, you know, there are a lot of issues that we could put in here. Did Adam have a belly button? Well, that's intriguing, maybe, but it ha- that's a, nobody cares. That should even check the boxes, something, even though someone might disagree about that. No impact on gospel witness or ministry collaboration. What he best does to help us is give us categories to think through as we're ranking circuit, certain doctrines. Um, I'm not going to read through Eric Oh, I'm not going to say this right. It's like Thonis, or I don't know how to say his name right. I heard it once and can't remember. It's not, it's like Thonis. Thonis, I don't know. He has some good stuff. Grudem has some good stuff. Um, But I think Ortland helpfully boils them down to four preliminary questions. When you're trying to rank a doctrine, start by asking, how clear is the Bible on this particular doctrine? And not even just how clear do I think the Bible is on this particular doctrine, but as I talk with other Christians, are they seeing this as clearly as I am? Second, what is this doctrine's importance to the gospel? If people disagree with me on this, does it harm the gospel? Three, what is the testimony of the historical church concerning this doctrine? You know, this is one reason why Ortland and Rigney are saying we 
maybe should let Pado baptists into our membership is because credo-baptists are in the minority in church history. The majority of Christians throughout time have been Pado-Baptists. So that's, you know, as they're maybe working through the, these questions, that might be what pushes things down for them. Uh, you know, what's the historical testimony of the church concerning the end times? Well, a dispensationalist premillennialism is like major minority and used to be called a cult. Well, there are different kinds of premillennialism that you can trace throughout history, but not that one. So these issues, you have to ask, okay, it's really convincing to me, but what about the rest of Christians across time? And then finally, what is this doctrine's effect on the church today, thinking of the church global, but more particular, what does my disagreement on this issue actually change about the way our church operates? So if I, if I believe that Adam had a belly button and someone else doesn't, does that change anything about our church's ministry? No. If, if I believe in a literal 24-hour, seven-day creationism, and someone else believes in, like, a gap theory or something like that, does that actually change anything about our church's ministry? No. I mean, I, mean, I think over and over again, we'll a- ask and answer that question, and it'll, it'll be no. Um, and that should be really helpful for us as we're ranking doctrines and figuring out whether or not we should disagree. And it pulls us from having a cerebral, you know, cognitive Christianity to an embodied, worked-out Christianity as we put doctrine to work uh, in our actions. But it's still really tough because not everyone's going to agree on how to answer these questions on a particular doctrine. So I don't want to say that this is a silver bullet, but I do want to say it's a helpful starting point. I, I want to build on it, though, with the notion of a gra- finding a gravitational center, okay? So I think we, we should have the, the idea of classification of doctrine, but we need to figure out what it is that allows dif- disagreements and differences of opinion to be held together in unity in a particular local church. How is it that one person can be a premillennialist and one can be an amillennialist, and these views are mutually exclusive, but there can be deep, deep unity within one church. I think the idea of gravitational center helps us do that because it pushes us to identify the core aspects of a particular doctrine that can act as a deep and powerful center to keep diverse beliefs peacefully orbiting in the same universe, in the same church. So I don't know how planetary bodies work, so if this is not how gravity works in our universe... Maybe this is a bad analogy, but it works in my mind, and it works, I think, in a graphic. Okay, so what I'm trying to say is we're not looking for the lowest common denominator. So when we're talking about the end times, we're not saying, hey, let's just agree to disagree on this one. What we're saying is, what can we agree about? What's common? What's the common interest we have that we can become deeply united about in our difference of belief? So on the issue of the end times, that deep gravitational center, that strong thing that keeps other things in orbit, is the fact that Christ will return in glory and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now the particulars of how that works out, that looks different for amills and premills and postmills, but they belong in the same universe. These people can be in the same church. Now there are some views that are too far out. The gravitational center, there's not a strong enough pull to keep them in orbit. They, get, they need to probably go elsewhere, that there's no return of Christ, that Christ only spiritually returns or something like that. Well, the gravitational center can't hold those in orbit. But when you can identify a gravitational center, it's strong enough to keep different positions in the same universe because you're finding deep unity in a core doctrine, in a shared interest. 
This is how we have to navigate forward and, and maintain diversity and preserve deep unity without being a doctrinal minimalist and without being a doctrinal sectarian. The, you, we, we could use a lot of other images. You could take every doctrine and put a Venn diagram and find maybe this is the way you'd identify your shared center and part. Do a Venn diagram, see what all the things in common are for the different views of people in your church, and that's your core, your gravitational center. However you get there, I think it's possible, and it, it shows that we're not just being naive and we're not minimizing the value of doctrine. We're emphasizing the unity that we can have in this gravitational center. So how do we identify this gravitational center? Um, it's hard, uh, but first, because all doctrines find their proper place in relation to Christ, we should treat every doctrine Christologically. So we'll talk about this next week when I put doctrinal triage to work at, with the doctrine of creation. Most of the disagreements that people in our church will have about the doctrine of creation will be disagreements about how to read and interpret Genesis 1 and 2. Um, and that, I think, is fine because we have a Christological gravitational center where we grab onto the language of the New Testament authors and say, but that's what we all agree on. So we all agree that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nothing came into existence except through him. Well, sadly, Christians disagree and divide and separate from one another over disagreements about the doctrine of creation, and none of them have paused to ask, well, how did the apostles articulate the doctrine of creation? Maybe that's what should be in our doctrinal statement. Because never in the New Testament is there a reference to literal 24-hour, seven-day creation, nor is there a reference to some gap theory or some articulation of the process of how things were created. So what I want to say is here, our deep gravitational center that holds disagreeing positions together, young earth, old earth, all the rest, is the fact that Christ is the creator and sustainer of all things. Um, so we'll look next week. There are good faithful Christians who disagree on these things. Wayne Grudem believes in an old earth. Uh, Jason DeRoshi, former Bethlehem guy, now Midwestern guy, believes in a young earth. And Desiring God published both of their arguments. Well, we can say, why can, why can those guys fellowship together? Because they believe in the Christological articulation of the doctrine of creation. Does that make sense? I, I think I tried to show that with the end times. What about all of our beliefs of the end times bring us together? It's the Christological statements. So Josh's text that he read from Paul or preach on, we, our citizenship is in heaven and we're waiting for Christ to come from there. Well, that's the Christological center that you find over and over again, even though these guys have diverse ways of talking about it. Paul will say in Romans 8, we, the, the earth longs for the redemption you know, the renewal. Uh, Peter says, this thing's going to blow up and be dissolved by fire. Well, they have different ways of saying things that lead to differing positions, but they're united in, in saying Christ at center, he returns. Second, well, any questions on, on that? Okay, so after saying, okay, what's the Christological um, lens for articulating this doctrine? You might want to look at historic and modern confessions of faith, starting with the creeds. Okay, so what did the, the Christians from days past say about this? Um, and then move to maybe historic confessions of faith, like the Westminster or London Baptist Confession. And then look at local church statements of faith that have been authored by other churches that we partner with or that we trust and see how they state things. 
So I'd say, especially for all you folks who came from Eden, is you hear us talk about doctrines and maybe you're like, ah, but that sounds like a major departure from what our former church Eden said. Look at their statement of faith and you might be surprised to find that they are saying the same thing. Maybe you just weren't in the class where they went into depth on that issue. Look at other church statements of faith and you'll find, yeah, there's actually like a broader range of, for, for disagreement than maybe I was thinking. Um, we have to construct a statement of faith in, in days ahead because the Baptist faith and message has been a good holdover for us, but I think we want something a little bit different. We'll talk about that in days ahead. Third, I'd say after you have looked at those things, you've constructed your um, gravitational center, pare that gravitational center down maybe or evaluate whether or not it should be by asking those questions that Ortland gives you gives us there, those four questions, because you might realize you've smuggled some of your favorite things into that gravitational center that probably don't belong there. Uh, so that's, that's what I'd say. Anytime you hear something you disagree with in this church, go through that process. Whether you're hearing something you disagree with that I say or that's preached or taught here, or in a conversation with a home group member or someone else, don't immediately jump to, this person is problematic. Uh, work through, okay, is there a gravitational center that we are actually deeply united by? This isn't the lowest, you know, standard of agreement, but it's a deep, rich theological center. All right. I have to go fast here. There are three areas for life where you need to do this. One is when you um, encounter individuals and are trying to decide, do I need to call this person to faith and repentance? Should I identify them as a non-Christian? So when your neighbor moves in, you get a new neighbor, and you walk over with a gift basket because you're a hospitable, welcoming neighbor, and you've included in it one of our Resurrection Church mugs and, um, you know, a little, a little note from our church, and you start talking with them, and you realize that they're a Lutheran, uh, you, you need to think, okay, there are like five different kinds of Lutherans. Some are liberal and not Christians. But there are some that are actually, they check all the boxes of the essentials. So let's keep talking. And you might find these are, these are Christian Lutherans. Red light, you do not need to call them to faith and repentance. Share in Christ together. If you find out that they're not checking the essentials, green light, share Christ with them. This, this would be true about so many. You know, I give a little bit of an illustration. When I was in high school, I worked at McDonald's, became really close friends with a bunch of Lutherans, and I always felt guilty for not evangelizing them because they just seemed so godly. And one of my friend's moms died, and she invited me to the funeral. And the first song we sang was in Christ alone. And immediately I felt like all the freedom of that guilt of not evangelizing them. Like, now I can just talk about this song with them. And, like, they're, they're Christians. Um, so from that point on, I was like, okay, maybe there are Christians in places that I didn't think there were. Um, and we all probably have a wrong impulse to look to call people not Christians instead of trying to figure out where they are. So I, I almost dropped out of seminary and stopped pursuing pastoral ministry because I was writing a paper on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I was reading a THM thesis by a guy who was saying, not only is this guy not an evangelical Christian, he's not a Christian. I'm like, I'm reading Bonhoeffer and saying, if this guy's not a Christian, I'm not a Christian. And it was so discouraging. Well, I think we propagate a lot of discouragement and confusion by talking about people as if they're not Christians when when we, if we just run through these things, we'd say, these are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, if, this, if you're like, feel like that's scary or bad or, or uncomfortable, 
I'd say just start thinking about your favorite authors and pastors and theologians, and then look up their denomination. You know, we all have our favorite Catholics, Thomas Aquinas and J.R.R. Tolkien. We all have our favorite Anglicans, C.S. Lewis, J.I. Packer. Knowing God is a book that transformed the conservative evangelical world. We all have our favorite Presbyterians, uh, Ligon Duncan, or um, you mentioned Ian Duguid. Uh, we ha- we all, I have my favorite Baptists, Andreas Kossenberger and Patrick Schreiner. We, we all have our favorite Lutherans, Martin Luther and Richard Warmbrandt, this guy who, the, who was like persecuted almost to death. Like we start putting people to these denominations, and I think it will maybe help you realize there are, there are faithful Christians out there. Um, but there are also people who are connected to those denominations and to Baptist churches who are not Christians who need the Lord. Um, so that's one area where I would push you to use this doctrinal taxonomy. Um, as we keep talking about our denominational identity, that's something where this will come up again, you know, in, in future years perhaps. Um, but then also within the local church, run through these grids when you run into disagreements. Um, there are times where you may need to go find a new church because you've moved somewhere. This stuff is really important for those situations when you sit in that membership seminar and hear things that you don't agree with. Well, run through these things. Um, Maybe at our church, you're like, hey, uh, there are things that I just really disagree with here. Well, I've listed some good questions, maybe some guiding questions that we would love to talk with you about if you hear things that you disagree with and think, man, I I couldn't keep worshiping here um, faithfully before the Lord. So doctrinal triage is important. It's helpful. It's the way that we move forward together. Um, So next week, I'll try to put this into practice with the doctrine of creation, which is, you know, no one really cares about that one, so no one will will be upset about that. Just kidding. I'm going to try to just help us think about it, Um, but then I also want to give some guidelines for disagreeing in a Christian way. Uh, How do we pursue disagreement rightly both in our thinking, not succumbing to logical fallacies, and in our demeanor? Uh, charity and um, faithfulness. All right, anything you guys want to talk about here? I finished with 30 seconds. Okay, I'd be happy to talk to you about anything here or at another time as well, but let's ask the Lord for help as we move forward together. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for Christians across time and place and denominations who have been faithful to you, perhaps even more faithful than any of us are, I ask that you would allow us to grow in our faithfulness, in our understanding of the scripture, in our love for one another. In Christ we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you.